we love stories of finding the, the special and the unique and, and even the supernatural hidden in plain sight in front of us, right? Where it's like a surprise that this thing has been there the whole time. I was getting ready for this morning. There was a, I was reading the story of this case of an Arizona man who um, really kindly, his elderly neighbors decided they were going to move. And so this man offered to help them move along the way. And so he went over to their house on moving day, and he's doing kind of the heavy lifting, the hard work. He, he climbs up in the attic, and he's going to clear out the attic for them. And as he's clearing out the attic, he kind of moves aside a bunch of the stuff that's up there. And he moves this old kind of like splattered painting, this canvas off to the side. And behind it, he discovers a signed Kobe Bryant poster, okay? And his first inclination is thinking like, I think this is a legit signed, really like rookie year Kobe Bryant poster. And he's starting to think, man, this this has got to have some value of some sort. And so he climbs down from the attic, and, and he tells the owners, hey, I think you should, you should get this appraised. And the owners, they don't even know, like, okay, sure. And so they call an appraisal company, and the appraisal company sends someone out. And the appraiser climbs up in the attic, which I don't know why they didn't take the poster out of the attic, but okay. So the appraiser climbs up into the attic, and he's looking at the poster, and he turns to this man, and he says, this has no value at all. And then he says, but that painting right there? That is an original Jackson Pollock worth $15 million. (laughs) Hidden in this couple's attic was a painting that had been considered lost for 50 or so years. A Jackson Pollock original valued at $15 million, hidden in plain sight in their attic. And so after I read this story, I climbed up in our attic, or I went to climb up in our attic. I discovered we don't have an attic, so that made it a little more complicated. But we love these moments where we see something of value, something special, something unique that's been hidden in plain sight in front of us this whole time. One of my favorite cases of this uh, comes from fiction from, from the Lord of the Rings. Is there anyone who's a Lord of the Rings fan in here? Okay. Yeah. But more or less, that's the same response in every service so far. We're the cool people. Okay. Yeah. So in Lord of the Rings, hopefully most of you are familiar at all with the story, but um, Frodo, who's this, the main character, he finds himself in this smoke-filled inn in a small town called Bree, and as he's in this little inn, he sees a man sitting in their corner who's kind of hiding away from their corner, and Tolkien, the author, writes it like this. He says that suddenly Frodo noticed that a strange-looking, weather-beaten man sitting in the shadows near the wall was also listening intently to the hobbit talk. He had a tall tankard in front of him and was smoking a long-stemmed pipe, curiously carved. His legs were stretched out before him, showing high boots of supple leather that fitted him well, but had seen much wear and were now caked with mud. A travel-stained cloak of heavy green cloth was drawn close about him, and in spite of the heat of the room, he wore a hood that overshadowed his face. But the gleam of his eyes could be seen as he watched the hobbits. And we see this character is introduced to us as a strange-looking, weather-beaten man with a lawn-stemmed pipe, worn-down, dirty boots, and a stained cloak. And slowly throughout the story, we start to see him more accurately. And we come to discover that this man is not just some run-down man in an inn in this tiny town, but that he is Aragorn, the king who they've been waiting for, who will restore these two great kingdoms of that world. 
He is not just some ordinary man hiding in an inn, but he's a man who, who has the power to heal those who are sick and those who are injured, who loves and cares for the people who are around him. A, a man who just the sight of him as he appears on the battlefield strikes fear in the heart of his enemies. It's a moment where we slowly over time come to see who this man really is. And the, the characters of the story and the readers, they go through the same sorts of experiences. They get told who he is, and we get told who he is. But it's not until they see time and time and time again what he is like that they come to realize what that truly entails. And I could, I could talk about Lord of the Rings the whole time. I could have a sermon about Lord of the Rings, but I won't do that to us. Those of us who like it, we can hang out afterwards and do that. Um, but part of the reason that I love this so much is because the way that, that the true nature of Aragorn is revealed is the same way that for us Jesus is revealed to us so often. That we get told who Jesus is and how great he is, but it's not until we really commit to the time spent with him, the life with him, that we come to see his glory and we come to see the presence of God in him. And so this morning, what I hope that we'll see is that life with Jesus reveals God's glory and presence. Life with Jesus reveals God's glory and presence. More often than not, it doesn't come the same way that discovering the Jackson Pollock in your, in your attic does. This moment of suddenly seeing, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was there and now I see it in all of its glory and all of its $15 million dollars. But instead it comes in the slow buildup of relationship, a development of life with him. So we're going to see that this morning in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Sorry, I should have done a better job of covering the mic on that. I really apologize. Uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. And led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Imagine Peter and James and John in this moment. They've been walking around uh, Galilee, northern Israel with Jesus for some time at this point. They've been on a boat in a storm that that nearly drowned them, and they saw Jesus suddenly calm the storm and put it to an end. They've seen Jesus give sight to the blind and miraculously feed 8,000 or so people. And in the midst of all of this, all of these sorts of walking and traveling, all all of these um, moments of nearly dying and this miracle witnessing that they're seeing, they start to play the role of Jesus' kind of crowd control. And Jesus is attracting a crowd at this point, as you can imagine with all the other stuff that he was doing. And so their days were busy, tiring. 
And, and you can imagine that in this moment, they actually kind of get it. They were going to get a day off. A moment away from all of this sorts of chaos. You can imagine how tired their feet would be, how mentally drained and exhausted they would be from all the work that they've been doing. From seeing the things that Jesus is doing in and around them. And then Jesus asked them to climb up a mountain with them. And of course they say yes because Jesus asked them to climb up a mountain with them. So saying no wasn't really an option for them. And I'm sure too at the same time it was a nice invitation for for these three, for Peter and James and John. It was time that they could be with Jesus. At the very beginning of, of his ministry really it was Jesus and these three around the Sea of Galilee, and some other, a few others sprinkled in. It would be a chance for them to kind of get away from the crowds and the chaos that had emerged and to just spend time with Jesus. And so they walk up this mountain with him. And just as they're getting to the top, when they think, okay, finally, rest, relaxation, a moment to like kick our feet up, Jesus gets transfigured right in front of their eyes. That he, his clothes, which were the clothes of, of a, a homeless wanderer in first century Israel, dirty and stained and worn down, are transformed into the, these white clothes that are so white that they know that this couldn't be natural. It's not possible to bleach clothes this white, and you can't do it in an instant, that's for sure. And then suddenly out of thin air, Elijah and Moses apparently show up on the scene. I don't know how they knew it was Elijah and Moses, but it was clear enough to them, apparently, that this is Elijah and Moses suddenly on this mountain. And then a cloud comes and God's voice speaks to them. I can only imagine for for these three disciples the, the Old Testament stories that were probably running through their head in this moment. Stories of what it was like to encounter God's presence in this sort of way. Stories like Elijah's own story, who was hiding up in a cave on the mountainside. And God said he was going to pass by. And so there's a great fire and then a mighty earthquake and a rushing wind so powerful that rocks are broken in the wind. And says that God wasn't in any of those things. But that God called out to Elijah in a whisper. And so Elijah covered his face with a veil And he went out to speak with God because he knew it wouldn't be safe for him to see God directly. Or stories like Moses' own story, who on Mount Sinai, God told him to stand behind a rock and cover his face. Because he said, I'll pass by and you can see my back because if anyone sees my face, they'll die. And then here's Peter and James and John up on this mountain very clearly in the presence of God. And it's no surprise then that, that as it says in verse 6, that Peter is scared. They're all scared. They don't know how to respond in this moment. And so Peter says, in verse 5, he says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, right? And it says he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. As Peter's mind is filled with all these things that could go wrong in this moment, all these stories about what it's like to experience God's presence, he says, okay, let's just build three tents for you and for Moses and Elijah. It's good for us to be here. Let's stay up here on this mountain. 
And since the time of Moses, God's people had experienced God's presence in, in a physical space, in a unique, special, physical space. And Peter was certainly aware of this, right? After, and bear with me, I'm gonna, this, we're going to talk about like ark and temple and tabernacle for a second, so hold on. Um, but since the, God led the Israelites out of Egypt, right, God instructed them to create what was known as the Ark of the Covenant. And so God had them build a box, that, a wood box that then they then covered in gold. And inside the box, they placed three items. They placed a golden jar that was filled with manna that God had provided them in the desert. And they placed Aaron's staff, Moses' brother's staff. And then they placed the two stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. And that all went in the box, in the ark. And then over the top, they placed this pure gold cover that was called the mercy seat. And it says in the accounts of Exodus that the mercy seat of God, that on the mercy seat, God made his presence known to his people. And so God took the form of a cloud that resided over the mercy seat of the ark. He, he took this physical place and made it his dwelling place with his people. And so the Levites and the priests, they would cover the ark with a, a veil because they didn't, you know, you weren't supposed to look directly at God. And so they covered the ark so that, that nothing bad would happen. And so for more information, if you're curious about the ark, I would encourage you, there's a really good critically acclaimed documentary called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and it's got a really, really nice kind of visualization of what happens when you look at the ark. Um, you're definitely going to want to check it out. Really lots of good theological points to be gleaned from this one. But the, 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 this ark, it traveled with his people everywhere. They, they took it with them everywhere they went. And when they would stop and they would stay somewhere, they would build a tent for it. And the tent was called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, so they would place the ark in the center of this tent by a design that God had given them. And then they would take the veil that covered the ark and they would use it to separate kind of this inner area, the holy of holies as it was known, where the ark resided, where God resided, and they would separate it from the rest of the tabernacle. This veil kind of acted as a barrier so that, again, no one would kind of accidentally stumble into God's presence in, like, you know, Indiana Jones things. And so this veil, only the high priest would go in usually once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would enter and make offerings. And for the 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert and for the, the time that they, the early time that they were in the promised land, the, the ark and the tabernacle traveled with them. And then Solomon built a temple for God, a more permanent place for God to reside in Jerusalem. And they took the ark and they placed it inside the temple and they used the same design basically as the tabernacle, as their, their model. And inside the holy of holies of the temple, they put the ark and God's presence filled that place with a cloud. And then they put up the veil to separate God's presence from the rest of the temple. The temple and the tabernacle and the ark were the Israelites' attempt to keep God with them. An attempt to give God a permanent residence in their midst. A place where they could visit 
to experience God's presence and God's glory in a moment. And Peter's line of thinking here, although he doesn't really get any credit for it, is that, well, okay, clearly I'm in the presence of God in this moment. Let's build a new tabernacle for him. Let's build a new tent for you, Jesus. You can stay up here in this tent. But what's interesting, I think, for us to see is that the disciples don't have this moment where they experience God's presence and God's glory because they went to a physical place, but because they were willing to do life with Jesus. They didn't experience this moment where they see Jesus transfigured before them because they went to the temple And they entered the Holy of Holies, but instead because they did the work of spending time with Jesus, of being in a relationship with Jesus. And in the moment, they experienced this moment where they saw God's presence and glory clearly. And the thing that I want us to see about these kinds of moments is that they're not the kinds of moments we can have just by wanting them. Or by asking God for them, right? When God decides to reveal something new about himself to us, it's on his own terms. In fact, this is true of people in general. If you you try to force someone to reveal something new about themselves to you, it's a surefire way of getting them to not reveal something to you, right? And this is why that good parenting often requires that we spend a lot of what is apparently wasted time with our kids. Now, I want to note, I'm not saying my time with Jude is wasted, okay? I want to make that really clear. But we have to spend a lot of time with our kids to see those moments where something new happens. Right? I think about it like this. My wife and I, we spent countless hours waiting for our son Jude to take his first steps. And I'm sure that there are plenty of other parents in this room who were in the same boat, right? And every time Jude would kind of start to hold on to something and hold himself up and stand there, Ryan and I were quick, you know, pull out your phones, okay, and we're filming. We're going to catch this moment. We spent hours and hours and hours honestly waiting for this moment to happen. You could look at our phones at the time, and it was, they were filled with video after video of Jude holding on to something, looking at us, and then just letting go and sitting down, right? False alarm after false alarm after false alarm. And to, to an outsider, that could look like wasted time. That was time that could have been spent doing something else. Time that could have been spent doing anything else, really. But if we hadn't taken those moments to focus on Jude, we would have missed the moment when he actually took his first step. We would have missed the moment when we saw this new thing in him. This moment where Jude took a huge leap forward. And the joy that we felt in that moment is the same joy that I think the disciples feel in this moment of the transfiguration where they see something bright and new in Jesus because they were doing life with him. It comes as a byproduct of what might look to some as wasted time with Jesus. Time where they didn't see something new. 
where they weren't experiencing God's glory and presence in a new and exciting way. All the other times they don't recount where they walked up the mountain and nothing happened. And yet we see that they have this moment where they get to see God's glory and presence because they were willing to do life with him. And yet it seems that so often we try to force God to be revealed to us in a moment. We try to schedule the moment that we're going to see God's glory before us. Just like the Israelites and like Peter, we want to encounter God at our place and our time. We want God for an hour a week or an hour a month or an hour every year. And we, we want to experience God in that moment. And then we go back to life outside of this, life away from Jesus. Either intentionally or unintentionally, we miss out on the moments of joy that come from encountering Jesus through life with him. Encountering Jesus in a brighter and a deeper way. And we live huge parts of our lives away from Jesus, and then we demand that Jesus show up when we want him to, when we need him to. And we miss out on the glory of the Lord hidden in plain sight right in front of us. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, do not miss, do not miss an opportunity to be in the the figurative room where it happens. Don't miss an opportunity to see God's glory and his presence, to see God in new and exciting and bright ways through life with his son, Jesus Christ. Do life with Jesus today and every day and experience those moments of joy when something new is revealed to you. Through the slow and the long process of life with him. But the story of the the transfiguration doesn't end there. And we get to see this conversation that follows starting in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone that what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. After this moment uh, where the disciples see God, they have the joy of seeing God revealed in this new and exciting way. Jesus immediately reveals again to them his fate that is coming. He immediately reveals to them again what's waiting for him on the cross. He he echoes what he said in chapter 8, where he said that the Son of Man must be killed and after three days rise again. And we noted last week that that chapter 8 marks a turning point in the book of Mark. Because before chapter 8, everything is kind of focused on Jesus' ministry, on his miracles, on his teachings. It's this really exciting moment where you're starting to see Jesus. And then chapter 8 on takes a turn. And it starts to focus more on the cross. On the death and the resurrection of Jesus that is coming. 
And it's perfect for us, I think, today to have this moment where we see God's glory and his presence in light of God's suffering and his sacrifice for us. That we see God's glory and his presence through the lens of the cross. Because this week, um, we're beginning to prepare for the season of Lent. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday is, is the first day of Lent, where we're looking to prepare for Good Friday and Easter. And Lent, right, is a time of prayer and of fasting. It's a time to be reminded. It's 40 days to be reminded of the 40 days of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And for nearly 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have observed Lent by giving up some luxury from their life. By giving up for the period of this, the 40 days some luxury that they enjoy in life. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit that this is a really old tradition, but it doesn't come from the Bible necessarily. It's not like Jesus says, you will do this before Easter. But it is a church tradition with a rich and a storied history. One that, that billions of us Christians will take part in in this season. And so I want to invite you to consider today, as we get ready for Lent, What could you subtract from your life in this season to add a focus on doing life with Jesus? Or what could you give up for the 40 days of Lent that would help remind you to do life with Jesus? In light of, as we prepare for his death and his resurrection, what could you give up that could act as a way of reminding you what life with him looks like? And I want to remind us that these aren't resolutions, okay? It's not your chance to to make up for the fact that you failed your New Year's resolution, so you just make it your Lent thing instead, okay? I mean, more power to you, I guess. But that's not really the point of it. But instead, it's a chance to give up something that you enjoy that will remind you to rely on Jesus, to do life with Jesus in this season, So what could you give up for the 40 days of Lent that would help remind you to do life with Jesus? Could you give up television, social media, coffee? Could you give up a bed, sleeping in, eating meat? Could you give up Starbucks for Lent and and use the money that you would save to bless someone else with? Or could you... Give up buying things for Lent. Choosing only to buy the things that are necessary for your life rather than all the other stuff we buy all the time. Could you give up listening to the radio or to music or to podcasts on your drive to and from work every day? What could you give up for the 40 days of Lent that would help remind you to do life with Jesus? And as you're considering this question... And the ushers are going to come forward in a moment, and we're going to have a moment of taking communion together. And I think it's so perfect for us this morning as we're thinking about what it looks like to be reminded of life with Jesus, to see and experience God's presence and his glory, that we would have a moment to take communion together as a community. What better reminder is there for us of the glory and the presence of Jesus than to remember his sacrifice on the cross for us. 
And I know that this morning I talked a lot about tents and temples and tabernacles and veils and all of that. But part of why is because there's a moment in the, the death of Jesus that I think is relevant for us as we consider what it means to be present with God. And so Luke recounts at the end of his gospel that Jesus has been taken, he's been beaten, he's been scorned, he's been mocked. At this point, he has already been crucified. He's hanging from the cross. And Luke says this in Luke 23. He says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple, it was the veil that had covered the ark. It was the veil that had divided the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle. From the rest of the temple, it was the veil that had separated God's presence from the rest of the temple and the rest of his people. And in this moment, through the death of Jesus, this veil is torn in two. And because of it, we have this opportunity to experience the glory and the presence of God through Jesus Christ. We have a moment that because of his death and his resurrection, we can encounter God in new and bright and exciting ways. That we no longer have to go to the temple and slip behind the veil to see God in his glory. But now can see God and his glory through Jesus Christ with us. That God is not separated from us any longer, but that he is God with us in Jesus And so we're going to take communion together. And it's written that Jesus says this. It says, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so in a moment, the trays are going to come by with the elements of communion. And I want to just encourage you. This morning, take communion in light of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, a remembrance of the way that we have access to life with him through his death. And the way that we can experience God's glory and his presence because of his sacrifice on the cross that day. And then the band is going to lead us in one last song. And as they do, there's going to be people up here in the front to pray with you. And I just would encourage you, if right now you need prayer for something, or you want to think about, you're saying, I, I want to do life with Jesus, but I don't know what that looks like, or I haven't even started yet, feel free to come up during this last song, talk with us, pray with us. Um, we would love that. And so I'm going to pray right now, and the, the trays will come by in a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your for the ways that we can experience your glory and your presence, Lord. We pray that this morning that we would remember, remember your, the sacrifice of your son on the cross, that you would give us a glimpse of how that has opened life with you, uh, life with Jesus up to us, God. And we pray in this moment that, that in the midst of all of this, God, that you would give us a vision for what life with you looks like and the ways that through life with you we can see your glory and presence. We pray all this in your name.
Amen.